great to see you this morning. Like Neil said, my name is Lucas Cooper. It's uh, great to be with you here this morning. I was on staff here at Scottsdale Bible for eight years and uh, got an opportunity to preach here last week and did a little bit of an update to start my message uh, last week, but we can't do that this morning because we've got to get right in to what we're doing today. If you, if you want an update on what's going on with me personally, uh, jump online. You can listen to the first 25, 27 minutes of last week's sermon. I talked about myself for about that long, so... Uh, you can always jump online and do that. Uh, welcome, no matter where you're at, joining us here this morning, here in the Worship Center. If you're joining us online, one of our campuses, Cactus, Mountain Valley, Venue and Chapel, all together. I know uh, Rustin's over at the Venue, my friend Rustin. We, uh, we're, we're both preachers, so uh, we worked out together yesterday, and what should have been a 45-minute workout was two and a half hours because, uh, because we take 10-minute breaks in between sets to preach to one another. So... <laughs> Don't ever lift with a, with, a, with a senior pastor. That's a bad idea. Um, hey, let's pray together as we get into the word of God. God, we invite you here this morning to speak. Again, no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey, no matter where we're at even physically today, um, we know that you can speak to us, Spirit of God. You can bring comfort, healing, and hope, uh, conviction, exhortation, encouragement, Renewal of spirit and mind, and so we invite you to do so today. Those joining us online, any one of our campuses here in the worship center, really all over the world. God, we recognize that this place that we sit in today is not the church. We are the church. The brothers and sisters in Jesus that are gathered here in spirit, physically gathered here, but gathered in spirit all across the world, even this Resurrection Sunday to celebrate you. And so, God, may we be your hands and feet, eyes and ears today. May you renew us to do the good works that you've determined in advance for us to do. God, any of my opinions or notions that might creep into my words today, I pray that they would fall on deaf ears and that your voice be the only one heard here today. In the name of Christ, the people of God, with enthusiasm said, Amen. In John uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we talked about this last week. Jesus compares spiritual life to a vine and its branches. And to his disciples, he says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We unpacked Jesus' metaphor quite a bit last week and affirmed these truths together, but we're gonna do it again for those of you who weren't with us and for those of you who were, just to reaffirm them and make sure they're concrete in our mind. And so I'm gonna ask you to repeat after me, I am a branch, my job is to bear fruit. Jesus is the vine, he gives me life. My father is the vine dresser. He prunes me so that I bear fruit. So get this, just as a grapevine's branches grow up and they attach to a trellis, we need a spiritual trellis, a spiritual support structure that upholds us as God's fruit-bearing branches. And that trellis, that support structure for us comes in the form of what we call spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are things like Bible study and prayer and fasting that we talked about last week. They are these habits that we incorporate into our lives on purpose, by the way, that help us grow, flourish, and bear fruit. 
And so today we're going to continue our discussion of spiritual disciplines and what it means to incorporate these things into our kind of life rhythm. But before we get there, I want to talk just a little bit more about the purpose of spiritual disciplines because it's critical that we wrap our minds around why we engage in these habits. And so as we do that, I want to ask you this question, and I think it's a critical question. It's up here on the screen. Uh, Who is the fruit for? Who is the fruit for? If I, according to John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, am a fruit-bearing branch, and my job is simply to bear fruit, then for whom is the fruit intended? I cannot overstate how critical this question is. Who is the fruit for? And some people might answer the question this way. Well, they say the fruit of godly character in my life, things like uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness that Paul mentions in Galatians 5, those fruits are for God. And with just all gentleness and grace, I would say to you, you realize that's a gospel of works, right? It's a gospel of works. That's the heavy yoke of slavery that Jesus tacitly warns us against when he invites us to an easy yoke and a, and a light burden in Matthew chapter 11. And we said this already last week, but the fruit of godly behavior in your life is not to impress God. God is already impressed with you because he sees you through the lens of Jesus. Jesus has given you his righteousness. So God already loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He formed you in your mother's womb. He loves you unconditionally and completely. Let's put it this way this morning. Your picture's on his fridge. He's already impressed with you, so the fruit of godly behavior in your life is not to impress him. And some people might say, well, the fruit is for me. You know, spiritual fruit like love, joy, peace, etc., make me a better person. And to you, I would say, yeah, godly behavior makes you a heck of a lot more fun to be around. But godly behavior is not ultimately for you. Why? Because godly behavior does not always make your life better. Sometimes godly behavior makes your life harder, doesn't it? to tell the truth or to have integrity or choose not to gossip or choose not to cut corners in your business, that makes things harder sometimes. Everybody's favorite Bible promise, Jesus, says this, in this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus, for that encouragement this morning. Jesus promises us that the fruit of Christ-like character in our lives will oftentimes make our life more difficult. So ultimately, the fruit of godly behavior is not for us. And the answer to this question, who is the fruit for, might seem insignificant, but a misunderstanding of spiritual disciplines can lead us down a very destructive, very dangerous, and very disappointing path. In fact, there's a modern Christian thinker and author, a guy named Dallas Willard, who spent his life uh, working and thinking about spiritual disciplines, and he writes this. He says, spirituality, wrongly understood, is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. Let that sink in just for a second. Because when we engage in spiritual disciplines or spirituality in a way that does not align with biblical principles, when we misunderstand what spiritual disciplines are for, it will be a major source of misery and rebellion. We don't just come out of this thing neutral when we misunderstand it. It equals misery and rebellion. So we have to understand this critical question, who is the fruit for? So we're going to let Jesus answer the question in John chapter 15. Later in that passage, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I'll let Jamie deal with that one some other time. And appointed you that you should what? Go. Everybody say this word with me. 
go and bear fruit. I am a fruit-bearing branch, and the place that I do that is somewhere outside of here. I have got to go and bear fruit because if a fruit stays on the branch, it rots. It dies. It falls off. It's good for nothing. In fact, it starts to stink a little bit, doesn't it? But fruit isn't meant to stay on the branch. It's meant to be what? Picked, eaten, enjoyed. It's meant to bring nourishment and life to the person that consumes it. The same goes for the fruit of godliness in your life. So Jesus says, go, bear fruit that brings nourishment to a lost and dying world. The fruit of godly character in your life does no one any good if it just rots and stays on the branch. So go. I can't tell you how many Christian people I know that have developed the fruit of godly behavior in their life, but their fruit just sits there. It doesn't nourish anyone. They, they have no one in their life that doesn't know Jesus, that might taste and see that the Lord is good in and through the fruit that is godly character in their life. So their fruit just rots and stays on the branch. And frankly, they've begun to stink a little bit. But staying here in this place and bearing fruit is decidedly not a Christian notion. Bearing fruit that brings nourishment and life in the world. Bearing fruit that makes an impact. Now that's a Christian principle. And Jesus affirms this everywhere in his teaching. He says, you are the salt of the earth. So what? Be salty. He says, you're the light of the world. Nobody lights a lamp and then covers it up. They open it up so it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus says, go do good work so that people will see them and what? Glorify your father who is in heaven. But in other words, you've got to go. In order to do that, you have got to go. So with all gentleness and grace, if you are bearing the fruit of godly character in your life, if you're engaging in spiritual disciplines like Bible study, prayer, fasting that we talked about last week, and it's helping cultivate godly character in your life, but you have no one in your life that does not know Jesus that could taste and see that God is good because of that godly character, then you're missing the point. Like, I love you very, very much. I was on staff here for eight years. This is my sending church. It always feels like home coming here. But please understand that the fruit of godly character in your life is meant to bring nourishment to a lost and dying world. So let the fruit of godly character be what reverses the curse of sin in every person you encounter, every situation you find yourself in, every project you take on at work, every class you sign up for, every tip you leave a waiter, praise God, and every time you interact with your neighbor, but it means you've got to go. So here's the point, go. Bear fruit. Go bear fruit. Like not yet, because I'm not done preaching, but eventually go and bear fruit. The world is lost and dying and hopeless without Jesus, and he is longing to restore and redeem what was broken. He has entrusted to us a ministry of reconciliation, and one of the ways that he affects that ministry of reconciliation is by using the fruit of godly character in your life to nourish his world back to health. But in order to do that, you have to, say it with me, go. Okay, now that we've kind of understood the purpose of spiritual disciplines just a little bit more, let's turn our eyes now to one more spiritual discipline and the fruit that it produces. And in my own life personally, and I can't 
you know, this is not from scripture. This is just personally. One of the things that I've observed is this fruit that we're talking about today brings nourishment and life to a lost and dying world like few other things do. But remember what we established last week that spiritual disciplines are not fruit. Remember, spiritual disciplines are the trellis that supports growth, but Christ-like character is the fruit. For example, we talked about the discipline of fasting last week. It's simply a temporary abstinence from some element of this earthly life in order to stoke our appetite for God. And fasting is part of the trellis. Fasting is the habit. Fasting is the discipline. Fasting is the practice, but an appetite for God. Now that's the fruit. The disciplines of silence and solitude, another example, they, they produce the fruit of peace, but silence and solitude are part of the trellis. Those are the habits. That's the life rhythm piece, and peace is the fruit. So today I want to talk about a spiritual habit that produces the fruit of joy. And the spiritual habit is the habit of celebration. Celebration is part of the trellis. Celebration is the practice. Celebration is the habit Joy is the fruit. And joy is the second fruit of the Spirit that God or that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna kind of begin with the end in mind. We're gonna begin with the fruit of joy and define joy. And I want to give you a picture of joy. And then we're gonna talk about celebration and how that produces joy in our life. Uh, how many of you were here earlier this year when Jamie did the, the sermon series on fruits of the spirit? Were you here when he did that? Great. I actually listened to Jamie's message on joy yesterday from that uh, sermon series. Fantastic message. And in that message, Jamie uh, reminds us that the New Testament authors understood joy. In the original Greek, that word is kara, and pleasure. The original Greek is hedone, where we get our word hedonist or hedonism from. And they understood joy and pleasure as contrasting emotions or states of being. They weren't the same. So in the New Testament, pleasure is a result of kind of fortunate circumstances, while joy is rooted in what's to come. This is why the Bible tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. See, it was out on the horizon, out in front of him. This is why Romans 12 exhorts us to rejoice in hope because joy is rooted in what's to come. So Jamie offered to us earlier this year a very biblical and very brilliant, by the way, Jamie, just so you know. Um, you owe me five bucks for that, but... Um, a very brilliant and biblical definition of joy. And he says this, that joy is a longing and desire that's built upon hope. Joy is a longing and desire that's built upon hope. It's an anticipatory emotion. It's a forward-looking emotion. This is what makes joy different than pleasure. Because pleasure's appetite is never satisfied. You know that? Pleasure always needs more. Pleasure is like that plant from Little Shop of Horrors that says, feed me, Seymour. <laughs> Pleasure needs you to feed it with circumstances, but joy is different. Joy looks out towards the horizon. And joy transcends, circumstance, transcends circumstances in a way that pleasure cannot because it isn't rooted in current circumstances. It's rooted in hope. Joy is a deep, abiding, spiritual gladness that is evident to those around you. And because joy transcends circumstances, get this now, this is great. Joy can actually create delight, regardless of circumstances. Joy doesn't need the circumstances to feed it. Joy can actually create it. 
But joy isn't just something that we look forward to in the future. Joy impacts us now. Just as a marathoner sees the finish line and it changes the way he or she runs and feels and thinks when they see the finish line in their vision on the horizon, joy, as we look forward in hope, changes the way we think and feel and live right here and right now. And in order for us to get kind of a full picture of joy, now that we have a biblical definition, as Jamie would say, a rich and cogent definition, In order to get a picture of biblical joy, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, He's a young man named Solomon. This is Solomon. Solomon was uh, born in Uganda with a disease called bladder extrophy. Bladder extrophy is a rare and life-threatening disease where an infant is born with several of his or her internal organs on the outside of their abdomen. So Solomon, this young man, was born with uh, his bladder parts of his bowels, small intestines, and stomach all on the outside of his body. And get this, he lived for three years that way. His mother had to dress his wounds every day and they would uh, uh, unravel these bandages and clean him out. These, these internal organs on the outside of his body and wrap him back up. He lived in constant fear of infection, constant pain, constant fear of ostracism from his community, constant fear of death even before Solomon turned three. He had had multiple life-saving surgeries. When Amy and I met Solomon, uh, he was three years old, and Toronto's Sick Kids Hospital had just agreed to do a very complex and very expensive surgery to repair Solomon's abdomen, and they agreed to do it for free. And we hosted Solomon and his mother, Mary, while they were in Toronto for those five or six months. Neither Solomon nor his mom had ever flown before. They had only been outside of Uganda to travel to Kenya by car uh, for Solomon to have one of those life-saving surgeries. So Amy and I were waiting at the Toronto airport for Solomon and Mary to get off the plane. We had never met them before. During their 30-plus hour flight uh, from Uganda to Toronto, Solomon's colostomy bag began to fill, and it filled up, and it began to leak. Uh, He was in pain. He was exhausted, and he did not smell great. He was in a strange new place. He knew he was coming to Toronto for a surgery, and he was already familiar with how painful surgeries are. So I expected that I would see a terrified young boy clinging to his mother in the Toronto airport, and my expectations were not met. I watched my young friend dance off the plane. And down the ramp and through the airport, his mom chased after him. It was awesome because he had joy. Because he had a deep, abiding, spiritual gladness that transcended circumstances, and it was evident to everybody in Terminal 1. He knew what was to come. He was looking forward to the future, so he was able to experience gladness in very difficult circumstances. A few days after this picture was taken, uh, this was Solomon's pre-op appointment. So a few days after this picture was taken, uh, Solomon would undergo a 16-hour surgery that turned out to be far more invasive and painful than they originally thought. Amy and I were at the hospital for the entire 16 hours, and when we returned the next day, I again expected that I would see a very sad, sedated young boy, and again, my expectations were not met. This is a picture of me and Solomon the day after his surgery. Go to the next slide, if you would. Um, We're in the play place in Toronto Sick Kids Hospital. Just so you know, this is Solomon over here, and this is me. I don't know if you can tell. Um, 
And I wish I could show you the face on the other end of this tube, but just so you know, it looked a lot like this. A deep abiding spiritual gladness that was evident to everybody in the hospital. Despite circumstances, because joy transcends circumstances, Solomon's deep abiding spiritual gladness, because he was looking forward to what's to come, was evident to everyone. One more uh, story about Solomon. This is my favorite Solomon story. And we'll talk a little bit about how celebration in our lives can produce the fruit of joy that we see in Scripture and that uh, we see in Solomon's young life. On Canada Day weekend two years ago, uh, Neil mentioned this earlier, it's Canada Day weekend. Happy Canada Day. July 1 is Canada Day. Um, The entire greater Toronto area is littered with firework stands. And you can get pretty cool fireworks in Canada. We kind of have a loose government up there. You know, lots changed in the law. So you can get pretty good fireworks up in Canada. So on my way home from work one day, that night Solomon and his mom, Mary, were joining us for dinner. On my way home from work, I was passing a fireworks stand and I thought to myself, man, this, this young boy has probably never seen fireworks before. So, of course, I stopped. <laughs> Pulled in, parked, and went inside and talked to the guy who was running the, the fireworks stand and explained Solomon's entire story to him. I said, look, I've got a three-year-old boy in my home. He has bladder extrophy. He just had this surgery. He's in a new place. He's never seen fireworks. I look at him in the eye and I quote, I need something simple, colorful, and fun. Like bubbles are here and I need something on par with bubbles, okay? This is what I need from you. And he looks at me dead in the eye and he says, I've got just the thing. I should not have trusted him. (laughs) Now I'm a kid at heart, so I'm starting to get excited. I get in my car, I put the fireworks in the passenger seat and as I'm driving home, I start to chant, fireworks, fireworks, because I am thrilled. I walked into our front door. Mary, Solomon's mother, was cooking this really delicious Ugandan dish, actually, and Amy and Solomon were hanging out. And I walk in the door, and I began to chant immediately, fireworks, fireworks. My wife's exact words were, what have you done? (laughs) Throughout dinner and into the evening, I'm chanting, but Solomon never responds because he's got no idea. He's never seen fireworks before. He likely doesn't even know that English word. He has no concept of what he's about to experience. So when it finally gets dark, and in summer it gets dark late in Toronto, uh, we walk out to the front yard, and I follow the very specific, very safety-oriented instructions that dude at the fireworks display had given me. Turn a cinder block on its side, put the firework in, light the fuse, and run. And so that's what I do. And what was supposed to have been simple, colorful, and fun, on par with bubbles, goes off like a hydrogen bomb in my front yard. (laughs) Solomon's mother, who had never seen fireworks before either, was absolutely terrified. The only emotion that my, that my wife was, experience, uh, was experiencing more intensely than sadness was, uh, and terror was anger. Uh, it was an absolute disaster. My dog almost lost her lunch. Car alarms were going off. I mean, it was bad. And I thought to myself, am I going to be the end of Solomon's seemingly inexhaustible joy? And I looked over at my young friend and he was terrified. 
His jaw was on the floor. He was stunned. He was just beside himself. And I began to feel the weight of a very bad choice sit down on my shoulders. You ever felt that before? And just then, a still, small, fragile voice broke through the deafening silence. It was a voice of a three-year-old Ugandan boy. And the voice quietly began to say, Fireworks. Fireworks. And soon that three-year-old boy and this 37-year-old boy were skipping around the yard chanting together, fireworks. We asked uh, Mary and my wife Amy if we could light off another one, and they said, no, no way, no how. We finally convinced them to let, let us, uh, chanting, 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 right? Finally convinced them to let us light off one more. I still have like eight or ten in my garage because this guy sold me a bunch of hydrogen bombs, so... The next morning, we got a call from Mary. They had gone back to the Ronald McDonald House downtown next to the hospital where they were staying. And in the middle of the night at about 2 a.m., she woke up. Solomon was dreaming. And in his dream, he was chanting, fireworks. (laughs) See, that's joy. It finds glee in the small things. It transcends circumstances. It's evident to everyone around us. But did you know that joy is far more than a great character trait? Joy is at the very heart of God. God is the most joyful being in the universe. God has a deep, abiding, spiritual gladness that's evident to everyone around him. Revelation 21, this is the end of God's redemptive plan and story. John the Revelator describes a new heaven and a new earth. God dwelling with his people. No more tears, no more dying, no more pain. What's John describing here? The fullness of joy. Genesis 1 tells us that God's grand redemptive plan started with the overflow of his joy. As he created his universe, after every creative act, God announced that it was good. The Hebrew word for good there is tov, and it means perfect, pleasing, or beautiful. In other words, God creates out of the overflow of his own joy. It's as if after every creative act, God chants, fireworks, let there be light, Fireworks. And let there be whales and cacti and stars. Fireworks. And cats. Hmm. <laughs> you, feel like, you feel like with cats, God like stopped early. Don't you feel like that sometimes? <laughs> like he got to some point and he's like, eh, good enough. <laughs> Sorry, cat people. Kind of. Then God gets to the crown jewel of his creation. The best thing he does, humanity, whom he loved so much that he breathed the breath of life into us. God might have even danced and hopped a little bit like my young friend. God, the most joyful being in the universe, allowing his inexpressible, inexhaustible joy to spill out onto the canvas of creation. And he invited us, humanity, to experience that joy with him. But then sin entered the picture. And our joy got squashed. And instead of living in God's joy, we began to seek out pleasure. But remember the distinction. Pleasure is fed by circumstances and it's never satisfied. Its hunger for something new is insatiable. So humanity built a tower for its own glory or pursued sexual deviance or wielded wielded power over one another or pursued wealth. And maybe these things gave us pleasure for a time, but they did not engender joy. And God knew that what we really needed was 
joy. So when God established his family, his covenant community, he wanted them to be different. He wanted them not to have to pursue pleasure all the time and feed it with circumstances. He wanted them to experience joy. So toward that end, God prescribed, commanded, and programmed regular moments, days, and seasons of celebration in order to create and produce joy. I'm gonna say that two more times because it's so critical that you hear it. When God established his covenant community in the Old Testament and he established the law, within the law, there are prescribed, commanded, programmed, not suggested, recommended, or it might be a good idea, commanded, regular moments, days, and seasons of celebration in order to create and produce joy. Last time, toward that end, God prescribed, commanded, and programmed regular moments, days, and seasons of celebration in order to create and produce joy. Just by way of example, there's the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year in the Old Testament, they would just have a year of celebration. All debts would be forgiven. People would take the year off. Slaves would be released. I think we're going to do that next year here at Scottsdale Bible Church. Take the year off. God prescribed Passover. It's a celebration of God's redemption of his people. He prescribed the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks. Those were celebrations that bookended the harvest. The Feast of Trumpets was a celebration to kick off the year. The Feast of Booths was God's celebration, to, uh, to uh, God's prescribed celebration of his total and eventual rule and reign. And rather than fueling an insatiable appetite for pleasure, celebration before the Lord strengthened the joy of God's people. Why? Because celebration produces Joy. Now, many of us think of this the other way around. We think that when we experience joy, we celebrate as a result, don't we? And that's true to some extent. We do celebrate as a result of joy. But the reason that God prescribes so many seasons of celebrations and feasts in the Old Testament and parties, to be honest with you, is that he knows celebration produces joy. Now, think of our definition of joy. It's a longing. It's an anticipatory emotion. It looks out onto the horizon as to what's to come. Now listen to what celebration does. Celebration lifts our eyes towards the horizon. It reminds us of God's goodness. It forces us to look beyond the potential pleasure that we might experience in current circumstances. Rather, we look toward God's great hope that he has in store for us. Deliberate celebration reminds us that there is so much to be grateful for in the here and now and far more to anticipate in the future. Celebration points to the truth that these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And in that way, celebration produces joy. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we incorporate the spiritual discipline, the habit of celebration into our life such that it produces a deep abiding spiritual happiness that is evident to everyone around us, a joy that transcends circumstances? I'm gonna give you 20 suggestions. And I'm serious. Probably need to move your lunch reservation back. 
We're gonna go through them really quickly. They're not up here on the screen. If one or two of them stand out, jot them down. 20 ways that you can incorporate celebration in your life deliberately, on purpose now, as part of your spiritual trellis, your spiritual support structure, your daily, weekly, monthly, yearly life rhythms and habits such that intentional celebration produces the fruit of joy in your life. Here we go. Number one, make a great meal and enjoy it with friends. I'm not a make a great meal kind of guy. I'm I'm more of like a make a great reservation kind of guy. So you can do that too. Wear funky socks, by the way. Don't, yeah, it's nice. Don't don't look at the color of my legs. They're the color of Canada. So you need to get a little sun, baby. Um, Great way to incorporate celebration into your life on purpose is dress up for no reason. You ever do that before? Like, if, do, you, do you work at a place where it's, like, appropriate to wear cargo shorts and Crocs? Okay, if you're working at that place, awesome for you. That's awesome. But wear a suit sometime. Just show up, three-piece, to the nines, double Windsor, quadruple Windsor, whatever you need to do. And when they say, why are you wearing a suit? You know what? It's July 3rd. It only comes once a year. I'm celebrating today. <laughs> Listen to a killer guitar solo or classical music or whatever causes your heart to celebrate. Throw a party in your neighborhood for no reason. I love this one. My brother used to do this all the time. Um, take a long lunch sometimes and, and don't, don't go to lunch. Just go bowl a few frames. <laughs> Enjoy a celebratory beverage. For some of you, it's wine, stuff like that. For me, it's whole milk. I love whole milk. Wine is great if you can do that in moderation and you're not convicted and you know, don't get drunk on wine, that kind of stuff. I love whole milk. I love Oreos and whole milk. I don't like that 1% stuff. It's like, it makes you 1% happy. You know, I want to be whole happy, so I drink whole milk. If my wife would let me drink half and half, I would. Uh, She doesn't. Next time you go out to dinner, order a dessert, but don't eat it. Pack it up, take it home, eat it for breakfast the next day. Buy coffee for somebody behind you at Starbucks or wherever you go for coffee. And when they ask, why'd you buy my coffee? Just celebrating today. Get your kids an ice cream cake on the way home for no reason. Watch YouTube videos of cats getting scared. <laughs> can, can, I be straight, can I be straight with you on that one? That one's worth it. That's really worth it. <laughs> Do that. It's good. good. <laughs> make snow angels. But here in Phoenix, I realize that we make dirt angels, right? You just go out and lay down in the dirt and do this. Look, it's an angel made of dirt. Um, make brownies for your neighbor. Sing in the shower. Dance for no reason. Decorate your office or your home with pictures of people that you love doing the things that they love to do. Fast from negativity. Ha-ha. We can take fasting and celebration, put them together, and just say, you know what? I'm just not going to be negative for the next 40 days, nothing negative. I have a friend that did that, actually. And in the next uh, 40 days when he was fasting from negativity, his wife, who was not 40 yet, was diagnosed with cancer. She just finished chemo. She's doing very well now. Uh, his business, when he, where he was a partner, got sued. Uh, he put a deck in his house and cut off the hot water supply to five or six of his neighbors. And in January in Toronto, that's a bad idea. In fact, uh, we were supposed to watch the conference championships together uh, this year when the, when the Cardinals got, got whipped. Um, and he called me and he said, hey, I can't come over. I've got to dig up my backyard 
because I've got to figure out why my deck is cutting off the hot water supply to all of my neighbors. And when he got under his deck, he realized that a raccoon had climbed up in his deck and wedged itself in between his deck and the house and died under there. And he had to put a plastic bag on his hands and reach in and grab the raccoon and pull that raccoon out. That all happened in the 40-day fast from negativity. (laughs) So if you choose to fast from negativity, just know that's coming. (laughs) Here's a way to just be celebratory in your life. Next time you get on an elevator, hand out name tags. Hey, welcome to the elevator. Welcome, welcome. If you jot your name down just so we can get to know each other, welcome. Come on in. Welcome. What floor are you going to, sir? (laughs) Or, especially this weekend, legally, please, you can light off some fireworks with me and Solomon. And these might seem like uh, mundane, everyday things, but, uh, but in reality, and in reality, they are. They are mundane, everyday things. But this is the spiritual discipline of celebration. It's allowing the good gifts that God has given us in the here and now to remind us of his greatest gift to us, himself, his own joy. The spiritual discipline of celebration is deliberately partying before the Lord. And I know that the world around us has hijacked that word partying. Can we just take it back today, please? Can we just redeem it? This is the spiritual discipline of celebration, deliberately partying before the Lord such that it produces joy. It's setting aside specific moments, days, and seasons where we celebrate all that God has done. It's doing little things that remind us of God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, and provision. It's intentionally incorporating celebration into our life rhythm, just as we would Bible study or prayer or fasting. It's choosing to tap into the very joyful heart of God by celebrating his favor and letting that celebration produce joy. My exhortation to you this morning here in the worship center and all across all of our campuses is to make make programmed, intentional celebration a part of your spiritual trellis. And watch the fruit of joy grow as a result. Now, if you were paying attention and writing these things down, you might notice that I only gave you 19 suggestions and I promised 20. Because the 20th we're about to do right now, we're going to receive communion together as an act of celebration. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your goodness to us. God, to begin uh, this message this morning, we prayed that you would speak to us, and God, we believe that you have, reminding us of your goodness and grace. Teach us, God, what it means to be celebratory people that produce the fruit of joy such that it brings nourishment and life to everyone around us. God, thank you for your favor for your grace that's evident each and every day, for your mercy that's new every morning, for your goodness to us that has exceeded far beyond what we could have asked or imagined. We love you, Jesus, and all who are gathered here and across our campuses and even online, all together with enthusiasm said, Amen.